0: Hello and welcome to the Seeking Health podcast. I am Josiah and I'm usually joined by my wife, Ann we were mi- We were missionaries for seven years until we stepped back in 2019 to seek health and reexamine our beliefs. Right now, I am a Christian but not an evangelical. And my wife is an agnostic and also very much not an evangelical. And we are deconstructing and reconstructing our faith together. Today, I have a very special guest, Dr. Scott McKnight. Dr. McKnight is a world-renowned speaker, writer, professor, and equipper of the church. He's a recognized authority on the historical Jesus, early Christianity, and the New Testament. His blog, Jesus Creed, is a leading Christian blog. McKnight is a prolific author and has written more than 50 books. One of his most popular books, The Jesus Creed, won the Christianity Today Book Award for 2004 in the area of Christian living and has spawned a number of popular small group studies and DVD series. He is also the author of the book, The Blue Parakeet. And more recently, the book we are discussing today is called A Church Called Tove*. This is a book on toxicity within church leadership and about creating a culture of goodness. Now, Dr. McKnight, this book is different from some of the other ones that you have written. Can you share with us some of the reasons for wanting to write on the topic of toxic leadership at this time?
1: Yeah, well, thanks, uh, Josiah, for this invitation. And it's nice to be up in Canada with you, although I'm here in Chicago. It's freezing down here. I teach seminary students. And one of the major issues with seminary students is dreams of what they're going to become and uh, preparation for that that sort of life. And they also have... Um, a far more realistic perception of what's going to happen in a church than say my generation did. in fact, my generation expected to form mega churches
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they expected to be successful if they did the right things. The current generation um, knows that there's a lot of toxicity out there, so one mm-hmm. of the things that uh, i've I've talked about in my classes and I found so much resonance with my students uh, was culture, church culture, and the problem of toxicity in leadership and the obvious need for what we call tov, which is the Hebrew word for goodness. And people all recognize that if every church had a pastor like Mr. Rogers, we'd be better off And so uh, the question that I've been asked by a student that is in some ways behind this is, what can I do now? The student asked me this question. I was standing in my backyard on a summer day. He said, what can I do now so that I don't become like those pastors later? Mm -hmm. He said, I think I have a lot of ambition and skills and churches that I'm planting are growing fast and I fear becoming what that is. So I, I started talking with him, and eventually that kind of conversation filtered into the characteristics of Tove that we sketch out, my daughter and I, Laura Beringer, that we sketch out in the book. And um, if I had to say one thing about that, is um, Tove is embodied in Jesus. And if we had more churches focused on Jesus and more leaders focused on Jesus, not using Jesus for their own success, not using Jesus to build a church or to build their reputation or to build a program, but just absorption with who he is, how he behaved, what he taught, our churches would be far better off. So the seventh element of A church called Tobes, let's say the characteristics or attributes or virtues of Tobes, is to be Christ-like or what I like to call Christoformity, is Mm. to be made in the image of Christ, is to be like Jesus. That's what we need most of.
0: So there's probably not a church on the planet that says, well, actually, we're not about being like Jesus. Why do you think that your message is something new and different than what other people would mean when they say we want to be like Jesus?
1: Well, I'm not sure. I'm not trying to say that. I mean, what, what's, what's new about uh, saying that we need to be empathetic or empathic or that we mm-hmm. need to be grace-filled or people first or tell the truth or seek what is right and do what is right and justice to serve one another? and to be... None of that stuff is new. I mean, this, this is in the Bible. This isn't anything strange. Mm-hmm. But um, I think um, we get lost in a variety of things in churches we get lost in success measured by butts in the pew bills in the plate and baptisms in the water and we get we get convinced that if we have those things we are a successful church and I I guess you can't completely discount such things but what is successful is people who become more like Jesus. The goal, according to Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul's words, is that God predestined us to be made into the image of Christ. I don't see that very often in church mission statements. And you know, they were big in the 80s and 90s. Churches were all forming their mission statements, their vision. May is 2000. I don't know. These things all start to blend together to me. They, uh, they were all making their mission statements, their vision statements, and I would read them and I'd think, oh, that's beautiful. But it's, it's missing the, the big idea. Because some, in some ways, Josiah, how do you measure Christ likeness, you know? Mm-hmm. I'd rather measure numbers. That's what many pastors say. How many, how many dollars are coming in? We want to survive. We don't want to just do what's right. We want to do what's right and make money enough that we can survive. So I think we've gotten a distorted view of the church. And um, if I may speak providentially here, I think the Lord is dealing some pretty serious blows on the church in North America, in the United States in these days. And uh, it's, uh, it's really sad. I mean, it's sad. I, I, I read these stories and, they bother us, mm-hmm. and um, something is completely wrong here, and we need, we need to face it. I got an amazing letter today from a, a woman who was a major business uh, evangelical success story, and she said something along those lines is that this is a message that uh, she, was, she read my book or our book on toe." She said, This is a message churches need to hear, and a lot of pastors don't want to hear.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that's, I was talking with you before uh, we turned the mics on that as my wife and I are trying to step back and deal with our own seeking health, the more that we seek health, the more we see unhealthy things, not just in, in, the, in our idiosyncratic realities, but also in the broader culture. Um, and then we see high profile. Cases such as the Jerry Falwell Jr., Ravi Zacharias, Carl Lentz, and then if we go back a few years, Mark Driscoll, Bill Hybels, James McDonald—these are all people that that have had an influence on us. um, That are leaders, uh, such as I could never aspire to be, and yet they have so much influence within evangelicalism. And yet the cases just—there's so many. And you can—if there's one or two, you say, "Well, that's an isolated case," but it seems as though something significant is happening. In your book, you talked about uh, the difference between a compassionate culture and a toxic culture. What, do, what are some early warning signs of a toxic culture? Um,
1: Josiah, one thing that we learned in, in doing research for this book is that most people in a church do not have access to what goes on behind the curb. Hmm. So warning signs are there for those who can get behind the veil. But most people only see the persona in these churches. You know, if you're a pastor in rural Canada, outside, I've been to Briarcrest. know, if you're a pastor in that town, people know what you're doing all the time. If you're a pastor at a mega church, and you have your own private entrance into the church and you have special keys and you have people looking after you and protecting you from everybody and everything you can live a pretty secluded private life and um i don't i don't understand why some of this stuff is going on but i'm i'm convinced that um the, the, the bigger the church and the more protected the pastor, the greater the likelihood that there will be problems. So a transparency is required for some of this toxicity to be eliminated. And um, these people that we have studied, now I don't know Mark, Mark Griscoll's story very well, but I've heard enough things that I think it's pretty typical. I know more about James McDonald and Bill Hybels. I don't know C.J. Mahaney. Uh, I know some of these Southern Baptist pastors who've gotten in trouble. But uh, one of the things that I've learned is that they have retainers, I call them. People around them that are sycophants, who only say positive things or they get fired, who are making a lot of money to protect. And this is a sickness that has to be eliminated from the church. This is just not right. And, um, I don't, I don't know, uh, how we're going to get behind the the curtain until people behind that curtain are willing to throw the curtain open. Mm. And, uh, we're, we're dealing right now, my daughter and I, with a woman who has made some of the most serious allegations against a pastor that we have ever heard, right? Scared to death to talk. Knows that she could be murdered if she talks. Wow. Okay. And this pastor is well known and successful and, you know, probably makes a million dollars a year. I don't know. Um, why is this going on? This can only go on because people like that are being protected. And we have to stop this. We have to have more people have the courage to come forward and talk. And so letters that we're getting are from people who have talked. The Ravi Zacharias International Ministries people are talking. This guy from Oxford University talked about what's going on. He pleaded with the board and they're talking. They're trying to get things done. We need more people like this telling the truth about what's going on behind closed doors. Hmm. I recently, you know, I don't mind telling you some of these bad stories because I think you face them. All right. I think you want to deal with them. Yeah, I do. Um, yeah. a, a pastor who likes to say that he likes me and likes to tell people that he likes this book. I know behind closed doors is ripping into me. And ripping into this book. That right there, how do I know this? Because people behind closed doors have heard him, but they're not talking. And we're working with some of these people to get them to talk. So we need to call this stuff out before we can just, we can start building a different culture for churches. Look, I think the message of Jesus and the example of Jesus, are absolutely mesmerizing and lovely. I think the vision of the Apostle Paul for a church of bringing together Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, you know, slaves fellowshipping with slave owners, and eventually forming a completely different culture based on siblingship rather than status. I think that's an amazing vision. I read 1 John about love and I think this is this is what we need. But but then you go to churches and it just seems to be corrupted people at times running corrupted systems and building corrupted cultures. And it's it's not right. And I'm not expecting, you know, I'm a Bonhoeffer fan. I'm not expecting a church to be perfect. And we have to give up what he called our wish dreams when we come into church because, and this is my expression, the a, a church is a hospital for sinners. It's not a country club for saints. So I, I think we need to have that. But we need to have told. We, we don't need power and corruption and narcissism. So you asked about the culture. All right, behind closed doors, when you begin to see narcissistic culture by the leader, which means a lack of empathy and a constant infatuation with self and reputation and power and glory, selfishness. When you start to see power being used by causing fear in other people, then you know you have got a corrupted culture forming. If not already formed, it's forming. Narcissism is selfishness. It's egocentrism. It's the opposite of glorifying God in Christ. Power through fear is the opposite of serving other people, expressing empathy. And so the, these, these t- sorts of things are just total corruptions. And, um, you know, I teach the book of Revelation. It's the presence of, of the dragon in Babylon in the, in the seven churches that needs to be eliminated. And we need to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Okay. I think I've answered your question.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you've, you've mentioned the word narcissism, which was definitely something I wanted to come back to because that, is, that has been a huge part of our journeys, understanding the role of narcissists in our history. And I, I wonder if you could mention what you discovered about brain science when, uh, when people are, the correlation between brain science and power.
1: Yeah, well, the simple answer to that last one is that people on power begin uh, their brain begins to be reformed or changed, and and the chemicals realigned to where they they uh, they don't see other people. They don't they lack empathy. They lack compassion, the very ingredient that Jesus is known for.
0: I'm really curious why you think that narcissists tend to get attracted to, or do they get created in these churches?
1: You know, there was a study, I believe, by a man from Canada that was fascinating to me because he, he said something like, his, his conclusion was 70% of pastors are narcissists. Wow. I went, whoa. whoa. Well, the study has been severely criticized on the basis of how the guy managed his numbers. He wasn't a trained statistician, didn't know how to do all this stuff. But let's just say that there's a general direction here. Look, a pastor is no different in that sense than the president of a small company, or a big company, or the the mayor of a small city, or a mayor of a big city. The more power you get, the more you can use your power for what you want. The more power we use, the more reframed our brain becomes. So if you ask me if narcissists are formed by churches, I would say yes. But I also believe that narcissists are ambitious, selfish people who are attracted to positions of power. So narcissists like the idea of being pastors. They like the idea of being presidents. We don't have to mention the current president of the United States. Uh, we, uh,
0: we have already on this
1: podcast. Yeah, we we, uh, uh, they are attracted to positions where there's power. You know, occasionally you run into someone who is in a position of power and you say, you know something? That person is genuinely Tove. And what stands out is how rare that is. Mm -hmm. So I'm inclined to say that narcissists are attracted to any kind of position where there's power, and power corrupts narcissists into becoming worse narcissists. And I think that you could expect, I was talking to a person who's a pastor, who was a pastor of a couple of pretty big churches not long ago, uh, I was talking to him not long ago, and I, I mentioned some of this stuff. And he said, I've met 50 megachurch pastors. And he said, I can only think of a handful of them who weren't narcissistic. Mm-hmm. I actually heard a pastor the other day say, if you're not a little bit narcissistic, you can't be a good pastor. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, that's a guy that shouldn't be pastoring the church or tell the pastors what to pastor, Uh, because that is the opposite of what Jesus
0: is calling us to be. You had mentioned, obviously there are so many cases of abuse. And every time there's a situation of abuse, there's not just an abuser, but there's also a survivor of that. And the thing that's most hurtful is when the church doesn't address the abuse, but tries to cover it over or tries to, Mm -hmm. you know, mitigate the situation. And you mentioned uh, eight things here that often these churches do discredit the critics, demonize the critics, spin the story, gaslight the critics, make the perpetrator the victim, silence the truth, suppress the truth, and issue a fake apology you would expect, you would hope that they would repent, especially if it's a situation that is proven to be, um, as, it, as it says in First Timothy 5, 19, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. You would expect there to be repentance and public um, owning of the story, but that often doesn't happen. Can you Explain to us what gaslighting means and somebody that comes forward and says, look, I was hurt by this church or by this person. What would it look like for that person to be gaslit?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's a a good question. Uh, We don't know if it's gaslit or gaslighted anymore. This is a a new term. I use gaslit too. To gaslight someone is to stun them by accusing them of misreading the whole situation so that they begin to question um, the integrity and veracity of their own experience. You know, you this is a woman who's been abused, and the man comes out accusing the woman of seducing him, of calling him, and the woman begins to you go, know, I, I wasn't doing that. I wasn't. He texted me and I texted him back. And now he's telling was what did I do wrong? And frequently, you, you may know the stories of children who've been abused, often wonder what they did wrong. Yeah. Because they've been gaslit by their father or by some relative, by someone. So it is an attempt to bewilder, befuddle, and totally confuse a person about their own story and experience in such a way that they will be either diminished or silenced, or their words will not be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And this is, uh, sadly, this is one of the tricks of the trade by abusers, including pastors. And the women that we've talked to, connected to some of the churches that we've investigated, most of them were were gaslit by the by the either by the pastor or the retainers or by human re, uh, resources, HR department, by people who believed the pastor and not them. And um, we we heard a story of a woman, and this is the story we originally heard, and it seemed very credible. And when we met the woman. She said, every bit of that is a total lie. None of that happened. And I have records and evidence for it. So, um, Josiah, to me, this is the sickness of power and narcissism on display. When you cannot admit the truth, you have denied the very essence of the gospel. You know, we said this about Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels preached. The, the, message, the gospel of forgiveness for anybody. But when he was confronted with his own sins, he gaslit, he silenced, he accused, he did everything the opposite instead of just saying, I was wrong. Now, here's the oddest thing I mean, the saddest thing for me. I know that had he told the truth and admitted what he did, that place would have stood up and given him an applause and let him have the pulpit the very next Sunday. Yeah. That's how how forgiving they were ready to be. Yeah, But he refused to do that. And this to me is the opposite
0: of Christianity. And it's so sad to see people that preach the gospel week after week when it applies to them because the first half of the gospel is repentance. Yes, there's grace after, but first you have to repent. And it feels like Time after time, when it comes time for the leader to model repentance for their own sins and to model the character of Christ, this isn't happening. Instead, we're seeing right. so many of these models of the I mean, world.
1: Let's even say it before that, even before repenting. They just have to face the truth. Mm-hmm. Just, just look it in the eye and say, that's me. I was wrong. This is what I was doing. You know, I, I was getting drunk every night. You know, I was doing whatever every day and mm-hmm. they just need to admit it and then they can move on. I mean, yes, they may lose their job. They may lose their reputation, but they're going to live in the world of truth rather than falsehood. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. McKnight, I want to thank you for your time and uh, yeah. I really appreciate the book that you wrote and I appreciate you confronting this issue head on. And, um, is there anything, Oh, where can people find your resources and connect with your social media presence?
1: Well, I have a blog called Jesus Creed. It it is hosted at Christianity today. I've been blogging since 2005. Wow. So almost 15 years. I think that's when I started. And then I have, um, a Twitter account, Scott McKnight, and I have, um, Facebook page under my name so they can find me there. Okay. Uh, But I, Josiah, I appreciate your willingness to, to look through these things, to deconstruct the things that need to be deconstructed and to seek for firmer foundations that are tove. I I really appreciate you, you Mm -hmm. doing that.
0: Thanks for saying that. Sometimes I feel like I'm going against all things <laughs> spiritual and religious but it, so it's i appreciate having somebody like you saying that i'm doing something potentially on the right track i do just want i want health i want love i want i want to be at peace with myself and with my wife and with with pe- with my fellow man and i i don't wow. know that what i've been raised with and what i the package i've been handed is not peace Full, and it's yeah. not sharing peace in through the means of peace so i appreciate your book thank you thank you i'll go bye all right bye